Hello, I'm Dave. I was on the one on the end of the line at the carol service, the one who was concentrating really, really hard, perhaps, perhaps too hard. Um, last week, Andy started the series on Genesis 1 to 3. I'll continue it this week with the rest of the first chapter of Genesis, which takes you through the first six days of creation. Day 7 is special and gets its own sermon next week. When we read the first page of the Bible, it's easy to bring with us a whole load of assumptions and questions which we expect to be answered or at least want answers to. Questions like, how old is the earth? Are the seven days literally understood and 24 hours long? Does this account of creation fit with contemporary science? It's unequivocally not wrong to have questions about scripture. The questions often come from good places, trying to answer questions posed to us by our friends and relatives, or assuage doubts and fears and conflicts in our own hearts regarding this ancient text. It's certainly not wrong to have answers to these questions either, answers based in part on the creation account from Genesis, but also on creation songs in the Psalms and commentary in the New Testament and knowledge of contemporary science and philosophy. Faithful theologians over the centuries have come to different conclusions about these things. But the danger is, as always when we read the Bible, that we make the story about us. And Genesis 1 isn't mainly about us. It's not designed to answer all our questions or give us answers to everyone else's questions or to make us look clever. It's not a science textbook or a modern critical history. It's it does tell us important things about humans, their nature and their role, but that's not its primary goal. To read this text well and discover what it's about, we have to try and read it as if for the first time. And that's hard. Like, this might be the one chapter of the Bible we all read every year. That's assuming we get to the end of day one in our Bible reading plans. It might be helpful to think of it like this. You're driving on a country road that you have driven on before, but this time it's pitch black. What are you going to do? Drive faster to get it over and done with? Hopefully not. Plow straight ahead in the compass direction of home? Not ideally. Hopefully you'll take it slower, put the full beams on, pay extra attention to every bend and every corner and every badger with a death wish. Because by doing that, you'll have a better chance of going where the road designer meant you to go, seeing the signs that are placed along the route, and getting home safely in the end. So I'm not really going to answer any of those questions that I mentioned. Not because they're not important, but because Genesis 1 doesn't clearly answer them. And if you come away with one thing from this sermon, I pray that it's a desire to be led by Scripture in interpreting Scripture to follow its contours and bends and hidden dips, to care more about what the Holy Spirit says through it than what you want to be able to say through it. So let's read Genesis chapter 1 and then we'll pray. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. And God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. And the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark the sacred times and the days and the years. And let let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he also made the stars. And God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it and they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray.
Father God, I pray you would open our eyes to see your beauty, the beauty of your creation and the beauty of your word given to us. I pray that we would hear you, hear your Holy Spirit and know you better. Amen. What direction is the Holy Spirit pointing to us in when we, as we read this? Where are the signposts pointing? Well, to God. He's the only character in the first chapter of the Bible. Just as Lizzie Bennett and Bilbo Baggins and the spring cleaning mole are all introduced on page one and turn out to be pretty important to their stories. So God the Almighty is introduced here and turns out to be the star of the show. There are various other creation stories that the ancient Israelites, the, the people first hearing this story, would have been exposed to in, in Egypt and in Canaan and in Babylon. And in them there was more than one God. And often there was conflict between those gods. And sometimes the cosmos, which is just a word that means all created things, Sometimes the cosmos was a result of that conflict. Not so here. Here, God is one. He alone creates. In fact, the verb meaning create, which is used in verses 1 and 21, is used only of God throughout the whole Old Testament. And the only hint of conflict here is between God and the chaos of verse 2, but it's over at God's word. He methodically orders the cosmos making it to be varied and commanding it to be fruitful. Let's look at how the text describes that. The chapter follows a clear structure. In days one to three, various domains are created by separating things. On day one, light and darkness are separated, producing day and night. On day two, the waters above and below are separated. I should explain that in ancient thought, there was a solid barrier called the firmament, or in the NIV it's called the vault, holding up the water that fell to the earth as rain. That's how the water stayed up there. And this is what's created on day two. This separation of the waters produces both the sea, which is the um, water below, and the sky, which is the gap in between the waters. On day three, the dry land is separated from the seas, producing vegetation. Then on days four to six, the domains are created. The domains that are created on days one to three are filled. On day four, the sun and the moon are made to fill the day and the night from day one. On day five, the birds and the sea creatures are created to fill the sea and the sky from day two. And on day six, the wild animals, livestock, bugs, and humans are created to fill the dry land from day three. Everything God does on days one to six is done simply by his word. Let there be. Let there be. And everything that God creates is good. As Andy said last week, it's a poetic way, or maybe even a, a liturgical way, a worshipful way, to describe the process of creation. And I do think it answers some creation questions that we might have. Was creation instantaneous? That has been a popular story at various points in history, though not at the current day. But this story challenges that story. The first day of creation is v devoted to the creation of time, of day and night. And this time passes as creation continues. There are evenings, 
and there are mornings. God creates a time-bound creation with plants and animals that fill earth over time in the only way that plants and animals know. Another question from our own time that some people have is, was creation produced by random chance? This story says no. A mind was responsible. Care was taken. It was done deliberately for a purpose, with a goal. Most of all, though, this structure tells us about God. So let's look at three things we learn. First, God creates by ordering and not by conflict. More like an artist and a military commander. But most of all, like a wise king. He speaks and it comes to pass. He commands and the cosmos obeys. He establishes his officials over each part of his temple kingdom, his cosmos, and bids them perform their functions. This lack of conflict is important when we consider the gods of the surrounding nations, as I said, Egypt and Canaan and Babylon, who were represented, uh, these gods are represented by the sun and the moon, the stars and the wild animals. In this story, the sun and the moon are his functionaries, not gods. They're set in their place to do their jobs, not deserving of praise, not needing sacrifice, provided everything they need by God himself, not at liberty to overstep their bounds, but only to serve and worship God by helping humans, by marking day and night, month and season. So for humans to serve and worship the sun and moon and think that by that they're in some way helping God is a twisted parody of the created order. The wild animals that humans have so loved to turn into gods are placed in their dominion, whether sea or air or land, and their job is to be fruitful and to fill the earth. Provided for by God, they live for him by doing what comes naturally. And he also made the stars. They too are set in place by God to be servants and not rivals. The second thing we learn is that God's act of creation is free. He doesn't create because he needs something. He creates variety and beauty. He creates for fruitfulness. All the living creatures are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And the earth is designed to be full of life in its various forms. Increasing in variety, in beauty and in number. Free doesn't mean arbitrary. It's a deliberate creation designed to reflect the infinite glory of God in a finite but intricate creation. Another way of saying that God's act of creation is free is to say that creation is a gift of grace. I'm so glad we did the series on grace before the series on Genesis. Because God doesn't give existence because created things have done something for him or will do something for him by supplying a need that he has. No, Existence is lavished upon ladybirds and blobfish, emperor penguins and emperor butterflies, freely and undeservedly, graciously. John Dryden wrote this in his song for St. Cecilia's Day. From harmony, from heavenly harmony, this, this universal frame began, when nature underneath a heap of jarring atoms lay and could not heave her head. The tuneful voice was heard from high, Arise ye more than dead. Then hot, cold and hot and moist and dry in order to their stations leap and music's power obey. 
From harmony, from heavenly harmony, this universal frame began. From harmony to harmony, through all the compass of the notes it ran. The diapason closing full in man. Diapason is a type of harmony, by the way. Creation was a joyful process. Not born of conflict, but of peace. Born of harmony, not of discord. A song. The third thing we learn is that there's a strong distinction between God, the calm ruler setting up his kingdom, and the teeming hordes of creation obeying his commands. God isn't a part of creation. He's not changed by creation, though he's intimately involved in his creation. He can't be mistaken from a creature. And though he sets up the cosmos to be his temple, the place where he dwells, he's not from there. God creates, creation produces. God speaks, creation listens. God is one, creation is many. God sees, creation is seen. But that leads us to another question. If God is so different from creation, how can we know him? It's an important question because this God outside of creation needs to reveal himself if we're going to comprehend him at all, if we're going to even know he's there. We get a clearer understanding to the answers of the answers to this question as we continue reading past page one of the Bible, which I do encourage you to do. But in Genesis 1, we do see a signpost. Let's look at verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God makes humans. Now, they're important. We know they're not the end of this creation story, of course. That comes on day seven, when God takes up residence in his holy temple to rule. That's so important, it gets his own sermon next week. And it's so important that it's in the Ten Commandments, and there's there's whole chapters in New Testament books about it. But humanity is the last thing created in this creation account, and, and gets its own sort of zoomed in account in chapter two, which we'll cover later in the series. So... Humanity is pretty important. And once humans are made, creation can be described for the first time as very good. There's a sense in which once humans are on the scene, everything is now in place, ready to function in the way it's designed. What makes humans so special? It's that they're made in God's image, in God's likeness. Now what does that mean? We have lots of theories about this but let's slow down and turn our full beams onto Genesis 1 first do you remember the sun and moon from day 4 one of their jobs in their celestial domain in the sky was to govern verse 16 says God made two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night they are in some sense 
delegated to be rulers of time, of day and night. They determine when day starts and ends, and no other creature has a say. You and I can't make a winter's day even a second longer than it is, which is a pity sometimes. But we're not in charge. It's not our domain. The sea and sky and land creatures on day five and six weren't told to govern and rule, but simply to be fruitful and multiply, to team and swarm, to increase and fill their domains. And they're pretty good at that. Midges fill the Scottish air, and grey squirrels fill the English trees, and insects outweigh humans on earth by 70 times. But they aren't supposed to rule. That job is given to humans. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what Genesis 1 is showing us about humans is that they are rulers. That's what the signposts are pointing to. If the sun and the moon rule over time for God, humans rule over space for him. Now, to do this, humans do need things like intellect and memory and knowledge and a spirit of wisdom and understanding. And these are things that we often think of as being the image of God in us. And they are important and they're part of the picture, but it seems here that the image is more a function or a role that humans have. And we get into trouble, I think, when we equate the image of God just with something like intellect. Because the very old and the very young and the ill and the people with disabilities can subtly be excluded from the gang. And as we've seen in the past and see so clearly today, exclusion leads to devaluing the lives of our fellow image bearers. We have to reject this. Humans as a whole are given the task of ruling over creation. And every human is given some responsibility and reserves respect, and has great value simply for being made in the image of God. But how should humans rule? Well, we're meant to rule over creation in the same way that God creates, with care and patience, with artistic flair, using words rather than brute force, thinking of the needs of others and not of ourselves. And doing this, we represent and continually represent God to the cosmos. We're priests guarding and caring for the temple of God's creation. We're shepherds helping creation to flourish and keeping it in its proper place. Now, humans represent God badly because of sin. It's a bit of a spoiler alert. But we're designed, all of us, to represent him well. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we see that design in others and don't forget it. To wrap up, let's go back to our driving analogy from the beginning. Imagine you're driving along the dark road, but now you've got a car in front of you, driving at the right speed, and you can sit behind them, not too close, but close enough that their headlights show you the corners. Their brake lights show you when to slow down. It makes your life so much easier. We can so often have that experience when we're reading scripture, especially foundational scriptures like creation or the Exodus or the Ten Commandments because we have commentary on them from all over the rest of the Bible. 
various books using the text in various ways, showing us things that we might not have spotted on our own, giving us new ways of looking. Andy talked about one last week. John chapter 1 helps us see this word of God as Jesus Christ, God the Son, always going out from the Father and doing the Father's will. From the beginning, God acting from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Re-envisioning Genesis 1 as in the way that John Dryden later captured it in his poem as a joyful harmony of father and son creating out of love. Cold and hot, moist and dry, dancing to their place as the father conducts and the son plays. Or think of Colossians chapter 1. In it, Paul writes this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now we can, now we can envision creation as a gift of love from father to son. Genesis 1 becomes a prequel the first step on the road to the ultimate creative act, raising Jesus from the dead and seating him over all creation, the heavens and the earth that were for him originally. As Christians, the new creation looms large in our thinking, not obscuring the importance of the first creation, but ensuring it. Creation in Genesis becomes an overture, introducing us to the main themes and getting us familiar with the tunes and the harmonies we'll hear through the rest of the piece. It becomes a blueprint which is fulfilled in the new creation when the perishable is raised imperishable and death is no more. We understand our salvation, our new creation, only in light of the creation of heaven and earth. Our salvation is as radical as being created from nothing, as light flooding darkness, as being made alive from the dust. John Calvin, in his introduction to a translation of the New Testament into French, wrote these words about the good news of Jesus, the gospel. He died for our life, so that by him, fury is made gentle, wrath appeased, Darkness turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt cancelled, labour lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy ennobled, rebellion subjected, Intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back, combat combated, war warred against, vengeance avenged, 
Torment, tormented. Damnation, damned. The abyss, sunk into the abyss. Hell, transfixed. Death, dead. Mortality, made immortal. It's nothing less than creation that the Father does in the hearts of those who believe in Jesus. Let's pray that God would turn our light, turn our darkness into light. Let's pray. Holy Father, who wonderfully created human beings in your own image, and yet more wonderfully restored them by the power of your Spirit, we pray that as your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, was made in human likeness, so we may be partakers of the divine nature. That as your Son came to shepherd and to lead the people you gave to him, so may we shepherd and care for the creation you gave to us. And that as Jesus brought your light into the darkness of our sin, so we would bring your light into the dark situations we encounter and share freely the life that you've freely given us. In the name of Jesus, amen.